Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the soundtrack to a life. And welcome back to the soundtrack to a life. Chris here, uh, about to embark on week 11 of the COVID-19 pandemic. By the time this episode airs, hopefully it will be over, which would make this the first episode where my life is not meaningfully worse by the time you hear the episode as it is at the time that I record it. Fingers crossed. With me today is Dan. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Hi, Chris. I'm also hoping that my life is not continuing to spiral into despair by the time this is released. The apocalypse is boring. This is normally for repeat guests where I would ask what you've been doing since I saw you last, but I feel like the answer is staying indoors, washing my hands, and trying to manage anxiety. I finished the first year of a hospitality management diploma program, and then the hospitality industry ended. And I feel like this is the de- conclusive proof I've been looking for that God doesn't want me to be happy. Yeah, that could not have been timed better for mean-spirited bits. So, I, you know, I wake up, I grapple with whether it's worth it to get out of bed at all. What am I even doing this for? Is it worth trying to defy the Almighty's will and attempt to have a good day? Or should I just watch six hours of Person of Interest? Actually, if I'm being honest, binge-watching Person of Interest is the most fun I've had since this began. Is it? Uh, Other than some script workshops I've done. Nice. I may have to watch Person of Interest then. I watched Designated Survivor, and that was some hot garbage. Oh, yeah. That that last season was some trash. Remember when uh, Netflix had a certain pedigree for quality that we thought that we could count on? I, I do. But remember that that was in addition to harvesting whatever network television would sell them. That is very clear from this. Ah, well, they always got garbage cake. There will always be shows about cake. And if they can't film new ones, I can always subscribe to YouTube channels about cake. This is true. I spend a lot of time, and this is before quarantine, mind you, when I had an active and productive schedule watching Natalie Sidesurf's channel, which was, it skipped right over the making cake part of the process and went straight to elaborate modeling chocolate sculptures. Ooh, that sounds great. But also, like, I kind of want to get blackout drunk, try to bake a cake, and then live stream it at some point. Yeah, and Natalie will not help you with that. She just has cake off to the side, ready to go. This is entirely about modeling chocolate. And that is so specific, but also I would watch that. It's a good channel, and I weirdly recommend it. Although my current Soothe Me With Cake show is the Great Canadian Baking Show, because apparently the Great Canadian Bake Off was too challenging a title. I love all of the Bake Offs. It's just nice people being good to each other for really low stakes reasons. It's so wholesome. Everybody's so nice all the time. Right? 
It is a great show for going through some shit. And Dan and I are here today, <laughs> having immediately gone off the rails, talking about ABC's 1982 album, The Lexicon of Love. Trevor Horn records are effing bonkers, and I love it. Video Killed the Radio Star provided the man a calling card, and you can't say the dude didn't know how to run with it. He's been a member of Prog Rock Legends, yes, and Pop Experimentalist's Art of Noise. He produced, if not all of the music from the 1980s, enough of the weird stuff that you know exactly the sound I'm talking about when I say a Trevor Horn production. And he more or less created the sort of joyfully excessive pop maximalism that made the worst instincts of that era sound huge and glorious. He did not deal in subtlety, and subtlety would not have suited his aesthetic anyway. He made big, brash, over-the-top production productions, with the first word production in all capital letters. And a lot of why he was allowed to do so was due to a Sheffield band called ABC. In ABC, Horn found a band perfectly suited to his everything-always production style. Big, theatrical, but generally non-specific themes. Over-the-top performances. Monster hooks sung in the most melodramatic way possible by Mr. Martin Fry. ABC clearly knew they were going to be stars and were willing to commit 5,000% to what they were doing, even when what they were doing was occasionally faintly ridiculous. Especially if what they were doing was faintly ridiculous. Yet the impression in places that the ridiculousness is kind of the point. And it's this lack of self-consciousness wed to the band's hyper-developed self-awareness that makes the fusion of ABC and Trevor Horn so compelling to me. Horn produced an enormous amount of music. He's been producing for as long as I've been alive, and he's still working. But with maybe one or two exceptions, he's never been quite this good. Similarly, ABC continued to have hits through the 80s, but they never managed to feel this vital and exuberant again. They made music that was good. This is music that, for what it is, is perfect. This is the fusion of form and function. It's producer and artist coming together and creating something greater than they could accomplish separately. In 1982, this record set a standard for a certain type of 80s band ought to sound like, and crystallized what a certain type of 80s pop star ought to look like, to sound like, and to be. And I love it for that. And it doesn't hurt that both Look and Love and Poison Arrow bang like motherfuckers, obviously. So damn, you'd never heard the lexicon of love by ABC, and now you have. Tell me, what do you think? Certainly hadn't heard it start to finish, but it quickly seized on me that this was that period of early 80s, especially in Britain, where pop music was starting to break away from disco, but hadn't fully done it yet. Yeah, there were a lot of bands that set out at, look, I don't see why I can't be a punk band and a disco band simultaneously, frankly, and I don't bother try. And that sounds like a complaint or a criticism because we live in a world of snark culture, but it's not because I, I kind of love that period of slightly disco, freaky instrumental combination can we think up this time that you got from that period. It's where the Pet Shop Boys were born from, and as anybody who has heard me refuse to shut up about why nobody in my city has produced Closer to Heaven, the Pet Shop Boys musical can tell you, I'm all about the Pet Shop Boys. That's a very good musical. Who would do it? That is a good question. There are a lot of companies in this city who really specialize in weirdly experimental and also pretty dark musical. Cappuccino, I guess. I could see that. See, that's my fault. I've been harassing the company known for doing 
30s, 40s Broadway standards. Which company is that? That's Front Row Center. Front Row Center? What the hell? They should bring back Front Row Center hot. They should. Their first show back should be Closer to Heaven by the Pet Shop Boys, and I should play someone's dad because I'm an old now. I think of this entire track list on on this album, uh, Poison Arrow was def. I made the note saying this. This is the one I knew. Poison Arrow still gets play on Jack FM, so it's the one they expect you to know. It's it's the hit single of the album, featuring a music video which seems to be playing off Greek mythology, but is also mostly in a cabaret. That is frequently, I think, but is also in a cabaret can be applied to most ABC songs. I think that's true, yes. Like, it's it's whatever they're trying to do for that individual song, but it's definitely also a very cabaret performance. And you're right, like, Poison Arrow is also the name of Dickens's 80s night. That tracks. So there's a lot of people invested in the idea that we remember how that song goes. And we're clear that what is either the chorus or the bridge, they gradually move from saying, you did it, you did it, to you bitch, you bitch, right? That's clear? Oh, absolutely. I don't know if that was supposed to be a secret. (laughs) No, it feels like, yeah, yeah. And like, just, it's not a concept album, but it's definitely every song is about love coming at it from a completely different direction. Yeah. Like, from that opening string overture leading into Show Me. Yes. Show Me, I have the note. I'm not saying it's a rejected Bond theme. It just could have been. Because they're going that over-the-top instrumental that I could see them trying to put this against a backdrop of Roger Moore posing against silhouettes of models. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, it doesn't... It doesn't feel like a debut album, almost, in that way. Like, a debut album is rarely this self-assured. Yeah. Like, this feels like a band that's been given time to work out what they want to be, and it is not, and they have not. This is just Trevor Horn rolling deep and going, I want to do something bug-fucking-sane, and ABC going, we have something like that. We're there for you. We're ready to roll with this. Because it was very... Two songs in a row where it was like, I have figured out their house style now. Like, nope, we're done another left turn. We're trying something else on this song. I feel like The Look of Love was the other attempt to be the single. Yep, yep. The Look of Love was a monster hit. This wound up, I have it actually written down because I know what I'm doing. Yeah, this record, in terms of how it was received when it came out, uh, it did hit number one in the UK and it hit number three in Canada. Uh, It did less well in the U.S., but it still managed to crack the top 30. The singles, as they came out, were Tears Are Not Enough, Poison Arrow, The Look of Love, and All of My Heart. All of them cracked the U.K. top 20. The Look of Love was actually a number one hit here in Canada. Uh, We were the only, I think, the only country where it hit number one for some reason. Huh. Well, I certainly buy All of My Heart being the other big hit. That one had a real Spandau Ballet feel to it, which is not a sentence that I ever say about anything. I mean, it's a good single to end the album cycle on. Yeah. Like, not that I our, think it did end there. Well, it didn't, it didn't end the album, but it ended like it was the last single released. Right, right, yes. Like, it was the last thing that you heard from these guys on the radio. 
until they went back to the studio and cooked up something different and came back. But uh, yeah, this was this was the only time that they were working with Trevor Horn because Trevor Horn's creative ADD. He just moved around. He absolutely did. The man has produced Introspective by Pet Shop Boys, Dear Catastrophe Waitress, which is one of my favorite Bell and Sebastian records, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which I feel like is peak everything all of the time crazy bullshit. Yeah. Uh, he's worked with Simple Minds and Paul McCartney, Seal, Tom Jones, Tina Turner, Malcolm McLaren, Grace Jones, Tatu, Robbie Williams, John Legend, Billy Idol, Rod Stewart, and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Those last two, together on the same record, he produced them. Oof. Yeah, he gets around. The man loves to work. And, like, he brings in a big, crazy sound, so I can't fault him. No, uh, definitely brings in an interesting auditory aesthetic to these songs. Obviously, there's peaks and valleys, because for your younger listenings, uh, back then, you had to commit to buying an entire album of 10 songs and didn't mean all 10 of them were going to be good. That is why we abandoned that model the second the Internet made it possible to just say, no, I like this one I hear on the radio. Give me only that. Right. And now they've done a thousand times worse where the success of an album is measured in how much raw time you spend listening to it, which leads to things like artists putting out three hour records to monopolize three hours of your day as you listen to it once. Not saying any method is perfect. (laughs) All of them kind of involve screwing over the person actually singing the song. Frequently, frequently. And yeah, Martin is just singing the absolute shit out of this. I don't know if he's oh, yeah. done musical theater. I feel like he could. He's definitely playing to the rafters on these things. Yeah, it is big swing after big swing as he chews the absolute hell of the scenery, which feels correct. Like, you have to really sell. I hope and I pray that maybe someday you'll walk in the room with my heart Add and subtract, but as a matter of fact, now that you're gone, I still want you back. Because if it falls flat, it's going to fall very flat. Yes. That is the difference often between this is going to fall flat and this is going to be amazing. A little thing called commitment. Yep. 1,000% over commitment all of the time. It's the Nicolas Cage uh, school of singing. Yes. Much as I learned in a play I wrote thinking... I am wrestling two pool noodles and pretending that they are snakes. If I go all in on this, it's hilarious. If I let the thought of this is stupid enter my head for even a second, the audience will agree with me. That's correct. Realizing how stupid what you're doing is, is the equivalent of turning back and looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. Yep. You just got to stay in it. Just this is what we're doing right now. This is an extremely romantic piece of music, and do not let the distorted funk bass lines tell you otherwise. On the look of love, I specifically flagged their use of a synth orchestra. Yep. I feel like this is a thing that the 80s were great for that recent decades have left behind now that they've discovered electric hooks and dubstepping and house music and all that is Yes, we're a lead guitar, a rhythm guitar, a bass, a keyboardist, and a drum set, but we also want to sound like we have the London Philharmonic Orchestra just for the bridge of this song. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah. And it's very, like, you can tell because the technology wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. 
but I appreciated the effort. Yeah, calling calling back to a disco influence, all of the bands that put the synth string section in feel like they went, uh, oh, we should do uh, an entire orchestra behind us like the Bee Gees did on their late 70s albums. And the label went, are you joking? Do you have any idea how much that cost? You have to be the biggest band in the world in order for us to buy you an orchestra. They're like, but what we do have is this Casio keyboard with an orchestra button on it. And then you just play the song and it sounds like the entire string section of the Philadelphia Philharmonic is accompanying you on this song. Yeah, you need to trick your record label into giving you money by playing to the fact that they don't understand new technology. Not by asking for the things that richer bands get. You have to, in the dawn of the MTV era, have a yacht, sail it around the Horn of Africa, put out three music videos, and have all of your fans go, wait, did they just trick their label into buying them a yacht? Thank you, Durans. The little tricks. <laughs> I'm still convinced they only did those videos to trick their label into buying them an actual boat. I mean, that's how I feel 80s music videos <laughs> went. I want to do a thing, and if I can just be lip-syncing a song that I wrote while I'm doing that thing, then the studio has to pay for it. See, also, the latter half of Adam Sandler's career, up to and almost certainly following Uncut Gems. I would assume he's going to go back to doing Adam Sandler movies after Uncut Gems, yes. Well, they didn't give him an Oscar, so what's in it for him to keep trying? He should have put it out this year. They would have definitely given him an Oscar. I don't know. He does have the competition of Ben Affleck in that movie about a drunk basketball coach and literally nothing else. You don't think James Marsters is going to win something for Sonic the Hedgehog, the third highest grossing movie of 2020? That's James Marsden. And it depends if he's got enough clout to get a leading actor nomination off what is very clearly a supporting role. I mean... Denzel Washington can pull that shit off. But can James Marsden? That's that, uh, I mean, I don't think they're going to give it to the hedgehog. Also, sure, they might nominate him, but losing things to a more charismatic male lead is basically James Mars's entire career arc. Yeah, I'm tempted to watch Sonic just to see uh, Sonic start the movie very in love with him, but then hook up with Tails at the end. I mean, we, we know that's how it has to go. That's just who that actor is. That's his weird weird brand and the uh title and general constant like overwhelming sense of romance uh was a conscious reaction on this record to the number of bands coming from either like an overtly angry or a overtly experimentalist phase uh abc apparently wanted to take it back to a more classical cole portery style of songcraft, but updated and presented in a more modern way yeah i can see that well, it was an angry time. You're in the middle of Reagan and Thatcher, the early years of Reagan and Thatcher, I should say. And that's going to inspire a certain amount of angry punk music. Yep. And on the other side of it, there were a lot of the um, a lot of the synth bands with like the early new Human League stuff, pre-Sweet Dreams, Eurythmics. It was a lot of bands just like playing with the technology and figuring out what it does in the studio and releasing the results of that, which is compelling but not radio-y. Yeah. It's not not top 40 hitty. It's more, we're going to figure out how this works so somebody else can do an actual hit song off it. Yeah. I enjoyed Empire State Human, 
if Empire State Human got played at an 80s night, I'm not stampeding the dance floor about it. No. It's like nobody really cherishes the let's make Jeff Bridges look like he did in the first Tron movie effects from Tron Legacy. But without them, you couldn't have had Samuel L. Jackson pretend to be in his 30s again for all of Captain Marvel. Or a dead man in Star Wars Rogue One. Or CGI Peter Cushing with his dead soulless eyes, which is on brand for Moff Tarkin, but still disconcerting to see. Deeply off-putting. I even liked that one. Then, you know, somebody does too weird a synth record, much like Martin Scorsese made The Irishman. And the technology's uh, being poo-pooed again. I don't know. Synth got too um, good for its own good. Once it actually started sounding like the instrument that it was supposed to, we lost that 80s, like, lo-fi synth feel. Although all of the bigger bands have started just buying vintage synths in a hearty... You're right. This should sound like it's 1987 if we're going to continue making synth music. And then grab a synth from 1987, and then you're good to go. Make synth that sounds like synth. That's what people want. That's what they're saying. Yeah. You're not using it to cut down the budget of your recording. You're using it because it sounds like it's the 80s. And I will admit, the whole early 80s new romantic thing has always been fascinating to me. Like... The parts that survived look really big and glamorous and exciting. But at the time, it was also an alternative scene, which means that none of the people involved had actual money to spend on their glamorous costumery. Wow. (laughs) So you wind up getting like extravagant futurist costumes as viewed through secondhand shops and what they could afford. So, again... And a look that people would spend real money on trying to recreate down the road. Yeah, like everybody remembers what Duran Duran were wearing in their videos from Rio. Yeah. Or the giant sequin suit that Martin is wearing on this. But like if you go back to actually look at people going to the club during this era, or even what Duran Duran was wearing when they showed up for the Planet Earth video in the clothes they brought from home. Yep. There's a marked difference between Planet Earth Duran... And the somebody, the label paid for us to look this good in the video, Duran. That is correct. Which it was, like, I know how you feel about the Durans. And that is kind of how I picked this for you. Because there were a ton of bands that were doing this kind of a riff during this period. Where it was a familiar kind of a riff? Yeah. It was the fun, weird part of the 80s. Yeah, it was... A lot of the songs, other than the obvious example of uh, Shoot Your Poison Arrow, a lot of them were songs I wasn't overly familiar with. They settled right into a groove my brain easily has room for from all the other acts of a similar nature at the same time. Like your Durans and your Spandows and your early Pet Shops. Yeah, like it really it fits well into its ethos, which I guess maybe doesn't give it enough credit because this did come out, like, it wasn't one of the trailblazing records, but in 82, this was certainly one of the early adopters. Yeah. And yeah, like, it makes sense that this would happen if you assume every scene is a reaction to the one that came before. This is definitely the sound of a band looking at punk and going, "Mm, 
I want to make every decision differently. Yes. What if we just change all of that up? It is The Last Jedi to Pops Force Awakens. That is correct. But with fewer people threatening to murder the participants. I don't know that. I don't know how many people threatened to murder the participants. Well, there could have been some plenty angry aging punks. ABC does lack both women and Asians, so that's going to drop down the number of angry morons yelling death threats more than a bit. I mean, given what we know about Star Wars, that's probably correct. I feel like New Romantics as a scene was more queer than the early 80s expected, and that they might have gotten some flack there. Okay, that's possibly true, yes. But again, I was not in that time or place. I am definitely looking through the prism of the current day and going, wow, that dude has a really good falsetto. It was a pretty solid falsetto. Right? And such a treat, because falsetto is one of those things where if you do it 100%, you sound great, but if you do it 96%, you are a nightmare person that I do yes. not want to listen to. You have to go all the way. There is a spot beyond what we normally consider all the way. I only know of one singer who does it, and you can find him by just searching YouTube for Russian singer, ridiculously high voice, and seeing what you come across. Ooh, I'm going to do that after this is done, because that seems ridiculous. You find the Russian singer who is male surprisingly and is singing at a tone about a half an octave below what only dogs can hear all right i'm gonna check that out no it's a very solid falsetto on on poison arrow identified uh forever together spelled oh, yeah, yeah. to be fresh and hip <laughs> as uh the experimental b-side track yeah it feels like it could be which for your younger listeners songs used to be carved into these large discs called albums, and to hear half of them, you would have to actually pick it up and flip it over. And so they put the they put the less popular ones over there because they no one's going to do that. You have to walk all the way to the thing and pick up the bit and flip it and put the needle back at the start. There is a needle. There is an whole apparatus to hearing the second half of this album, as it was called. So, you did your throwaway songs on there. (laughs) Truly, I believe that young people are getting back into vinyl enough for that bit to start being an I am old moment as well. The the one hole in my bit here is that (laughs) vinyl came back. Like, we put vinyl aside to get into cassettes and CDs, and they're dead. They're gone. They're over cassettes were such a tiny blip in musical history and vinyl just came back like either i'm going to download it onto my computer or i'm going to buy a large slightly plastic disc with on it and that's my music like at least cds still exist because boomers are not going to buy their entire music collection a third time in their lifetime which do you know what that is fair yeah uh, how many times can I, can I really be expected to buy the Batman Mask the Phantasm soundtrack? Because I'll keep doing it, but I have it twice. That feels like enough. You've got your cassette version and you've got your CD version? I've got my CD version and I have it on iTunes. Which oh. I suppose I technically only paid for it once because I just ripped the CD because that was the thing you were able to do. Yeah, probably correct. We 
already spent all this goddamn money. Not that Apple would not like us to spend more money, obviously. Obviously, they would like you to buy it in a version where they get a cut. Yeah. Same way with this. I bought Lexicon of Love on probably cassette from Recordland, given the whole my history of with music of it all. And then I have it on vinyl now. Also from Recordland from when it was first released. Very versatile store in terms of what outdated format would you like this on? We have everything except the internet. That's true, but we feel like you have your own internet. Yes, you can just internet at home. You don't need us to do that for you. Exactly. So, the spoken word intervals. Is that a bit... Because I feel like it edges right up to being a bit, and you're never quite sure if it's a bit as it's happening, and I think that that's beautiful. I'm going to be honest with your your listeners now here. I listen to this on YouTube, so I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, the... um... I thought you loved me, but it seems you don't care. I care enough to know that I could never love you. Yes, okay, yes. <laughs> Is this a bit? <laughs> I thought that they just added that for the video. No, that's but on the song. <laughs> this is one of those videos where they just add a little bit of wacky dialogue, like Britney Spears no. talking to the boy band astronaut who got her the diamond from Titanic. Is that on the album too? Is that Do they do that bit on the album as well? I mean, I'm not so familiar with Miss Spears, but it feels a little bit like, like, are they, are they recording for the video? Uh, the other one, and though my friends just might ask me, they say, Martin, maybe one day you'll find true love. And I say, oh, maybe, but there must be a solution to the one thing. The one thing we can't find. Is that a bit? That feels like a bit. That's definitely a <laughs> bit. That did not organically fit into the song they were doing. That's a bit. I am now, I am forever changed on Poison Arrow now that I know that that is not just, we want to have the two of them talk in the video. Can we just add that in? So much as, well, now this bit, there is a spoken bit of dialogue in between this chorus and the next verse. So we have to work that in. Absolutely. That was a thing that they felt they needed to do, which on your debut album, which you don't know if you're getting another one, depending on how this does, is a very confident move. Well, that is a, we don't know we're getting a second album, so just leave everything on the field kind of a move right there. Yeah, the the stand-up Drew Tarver, if you're familiar with that gentleman, does a recurring character on comedy Bang Bang called Martin Sheffield Lickley. Right. Where basically he's an 80s new wave singer. Uh, plotting a comeback and every song is inspired by some personal life experience that he's had and it's always unspeakably tragic like the dude's just led the most tragic life and then every song that he's teeing up is always sung over a bed track to the look of love by abc and it's about an inanimate object that also represents love and it is never not funny like of all the jokes that are just the same bit over and over again feels like that is a bit that would work every time yeah yeah the um like he'll tell this horrifying story about sitting in the hospital with a family member who did not make it and that's what inspired this song hit it i'm working out at the love gym (laughs) (laughs) the treadmill is my heart it's so good like very few people are over the top cartoonish in a way that can be memed yeah 
coming up on 40 years later and still work for an audience that is surely decades too young for what you're doing. Surely this is not a reference that everyone you're aiming at is getting. This is, I am committed to this reference and you don't get it just makes it better for me. Yeah. Like certainly, certainly, um, Ackerman is of a certain age and kind of a music hipster from the eighties, nineties. Yeah. So maybe some of the audience that comes to him, is of a similar temperament, but I can't imagine all of them. No, there have got to be a few people who will later discover that song and go, hey, wait, that's the one from that comedy Bang Bang bit. Yeah, which, I mean, that would be a fun first experience with this record to have. It would. Lord knows we've all had that moment where we hear a piece of actual culture and think, hey, what, no, wait, is that the opera song from the Bugs Bunny cartoon? Yeah, yeah. That Kill the Wabbit? I mean, that's a good way to learn about, uh, is that a good way to learn about classical music? Maybe I want to, no, do you know what? First instinct, best instinct. Looney Tunes is a good way to learn about classical music. They were sneaking a lesson on classical music in under your noses. It's a perfect trick to get people involved. Right? You can't start your kids learning young enough. Now you've tricked them into learning how a musical accompaniment underscores a scene. Yeah. And uh, and this is this is held up as one of the landmark uh, UK pop records of its era. Like the NME listed it at number 15 on its list of the top 50 albums of the 80s. And it's number three on its top 50 of 1982. Uncut listed it at 52 on their list of 100 greatest new albums of all time. Uh, Mojo put it at number nine of its top 20 albums of 82. The Village Voice put it at number 19 of the same thing. Q magazine put it at number 40 in the list of the top 100 British albums ever made and 92nd greatest album of all time. The Observer put it at 42 on its top 100 British albums. And it's featured in uh, 1001 albums you must hear before you die, which is a lot more critical acclaim than I expected when I Googled how was this received critically. It's true. That is a lot of accolades. <laughs> I think with it holds up decent. It wasn't until the lead singer had been singing for approximately two seconds that was absolutely certain this was the early 80s. Yeah, like this feels, I mean, I'm fine with things dating. Things can be of their era. And this is fun and it holds up. It just, it feels like. It's a fun era. It's okay to sound like you're from it. Yeah. It just seems like a weird record to pedestal. True. Feels more like a, oh yeah, I remember that one. That one was good. Than a, yes, you absolutely must hear this album. Before the plague takes you. At the same time, definitely um, put it on 40 years later and was happy throughout. During a time in which it is extremely difficult to be happy. It's not an easy emotion to achieve these days. So, yeah, that is definitely something that has value. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is one of the greatest debut albums of all time of any band in any genre of music in history. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. If you want an early 80s UK punk band that also sounds like a disco band. And I do. Yep. Yes, you do. And your favorite Duran Duran record is, I want to say, their second. They did not found. Rio? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And my favorite Human League record is not until their third. Once they've gotten uh, fascination out of their system. Yeah, like, like maybe this is just a case of a band that comes out of the gate so perfectly that uh, nothing they did after could ever possibly compare. 
maudlin note, but tis the season. Hey, they did fine for themselves. They continued having kids through the rest of the 80s. Like, Be Near so Me was... Good. Yeah, Be Near Me was kind of a big deal. Uh, when Smokey Sings was also fairly big. Oh, I love when Smokey um, Sings. That's these same guys. It's a weirdly straight ballad about a men singing about a male singer and how good he is. Smokey Sings is very fucking good. You feel everything. Yeah. Yeah, every single thing. And that was like five years after this, and they still had enough juice to pull off a giant radio hit. So, yeah, maybe their debut album was their big smash thing, but you can never be ashamed to be mostly as good as your first thing. Otherwise, no one should ever make a sequel ever. Egg. Exactly. By the end of the 80s, they were pretty much done having radio music. But come on, this is a deeply 80s band. You could not expect them to survive past that. No, not everybody manages to make a comeback into future decades from having so distinctly 80s a sound. Eventually, you have to say, this is no longer my era. I'm just yeah. going to live off the royalties of my successful decade in music. Absolutely. And then when you're um, bored and you want to go out, uh, Martin Furai continues to tour under the name ABC. He's the only one left from the original lineup, obviously, but probably the only one that we need. And I would go see them if concerts were still a thing. Yeah, I could picture that. Right? Like, I think that would be a thing. Get him up there in his gold lame suit, bash out like a dozen different songs that went, I did not realize that all of these songs were by the same band. Yeah, it would be a, <laughs> an entertaining variety. Right? That's my uh, that's my favorite thing to watch somebody do at a concert for a group that they're only like mildly familiar with. Yeah, like watch watching Chelsea at a fifty four forty show, going, oh yeah, I know every fifty four forty song, every single song of this night, I am familiar with and like, but did not know that it was all the same band. That's an entertaining experience. <laughs> and yeah, if concerts are ever happening again. Maybe, eventually. Yeah, right? I mean, I can see it. I definitely will have to figure out something to release instead of my Concerts I Saw This Year episode uh, in December, because that would be a very short episode. It likely would, in that concerts happening before the end of the year feels increasingly unlikely. I still believe that there's an outside chance that we can catch a show by a band from Canada. In Canada. In Canada. Toward the end of the year. It's a possibility. That feels reasonable to me. I feel like I could probably get to like a Sloan show in November. Or perhaps 2020 is not for me. And I should stay at home and listen to records by old 80s bands that I would have liked to have seen, but can still listen to. And that ain't nothing. That's a thing. That is definitely an entertaining option for your evening. Of not getting sick. Perfect. I love not getting sick. It's what I spend not all of my time, but the majority of my time doing. Which, let's end on a down note. I guess that brings us to the night. Dan, I'm going to ask you three questions because I ask three questions at the end of these shows, as you well know. You ever going to listen to the Lexicon of Love again? Uh, very possibly. Solid. Um, I don't know. I usually ask if you want to explore the rest of their catalog. Realistically, other than this, they're a pretty greatest hits band. You want to explore other weird uh, new romantic bands? Oh, you know I do. Well, um, you know Spando Ballet. I'm Ultra familiar with Spando Ballet. Ultravox is goddamn good. Uh, 
Dare by Human League is an enduring classic. Uh, the first two Culture Club ones are pretty fucking great. Yep. There are a bunch of options. Obviously, if you want to follow Trevor Horn's catalog, you accidentally already have. Yeah, he just shows up. The Mount Everest of his 80s production, I would probably say, would be this. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Maybe Introspective by Pet Shop Boys. Right. Introspective is so weird. I don't know why they would call a that aggressive a dance record the title that they did. But I love it, so what are you going to do? And if you were going to end the episode on one song, what song would you pick? One song I, for the outro. I think we'd go take us out with the look of love. We're going out with the look of love. That song is goddamn good. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. Do them podcast things. Dan, do you have anything going on that you'd like for people to follow that has not been canceled? I talk about various travel theater and nerd things at TalesFromPartsUnknown.com. And I'm about to go in. By the time this broadcasts, I will have done my annual comic book TV award show, which I spend a grotesque amount of time on and pretend it's for a reason other than I would do it anyway. I mean, those are always entertaining, though. I don't know how many people read them. I know I do. And then argue with you about their quality. Everyone should read them. And most of you should argue with me, depending on what the number gets up to. Let's face it. There's a ceiling. That is very true. And the great thing about your I have watched every single show that is based on a comic book. And now here is my awards show. Other than the Riverdale. Is that in 2020, there is not better use for your time. There really isn't. Like, I watched all of Runaways in two days, and no one noticed my absence. That show's good. It holds up. It is. I think it really found its feet just in time to get canceled. Like a lot of Marvel TV. That is the unfortunate case. This has been the soundtrack to a life, everybody. We're going to be back in two weeks discussing a different band. Different band. Ooh, yours turned less into a goat at the end than mine did. I figure we're just doing different things. I know my friends just might ask me. They say, Martin, maybe one day you'll find true love. 